Hello and welcome to episode 360 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. That's Ben Olson. Together, we're the founders of LSATdemon.com and LSAT Demon Daily podcast. Uh, you can always be LSAT famous. You can uh, email help at thinkinglsat.com to get on an upcoming show. This one's going to air on Monday, July 25th. That means uh, you have one day to decide whether you want to register for the September September 2022 LSAT. I still don't know why these registration deadlines are so damn far away from the test. That makes not a lot of sense to me. But uh, anyway, you've got to decide tomorrow whether you want to register. Basically, are you happy with your practice test scores? If you are, register. If you're not happy with your practice test scores, probably don't register. Um, you know, if you're within five points or something like that, then maybe register uh, on the theory that you're going to improve that five points by the time you get there. But if you're 15 points away, uh, you shouldn't be hoping for miracles. You really should just wait to register until you've done the work. Uh, you can go to lsat.link forward slash dates if you would like to see all of the upcoming deadlines. Come to my free uh, classes. On Thursday, July 28th, I'm doing a class called Do Law School Rankings Matter? You can go to lsat.link forward slash Nathan to register for that class. All you need is a demon free account. Today on the show, we had, again, it was a bit of a mailbag. Thank you, all the people who emailed help at thinkinglsat.com. Um, maybe the most compelling thing that we talked about was near the very end of the show, we had uh, a pretty tragic news item from businessinsider.com uh, about this dude who has $347,000 in law school student loan debt and cannot find a job. Uh, it is sad. Everybody, you, everybody should know this. I mean, this is like if I was in charge of the American Bar Association, it, you would be forced to look at this before you start paying tuition. Or if I was in charge of the U.S. Department of Education, like part of my loan, you know, they do that like pre loan counseling. It's some bullshit mm -hmm. that you just have to like click through on a website. Yep. It would be like, hey, look at this picture. <laughs> look at this guy's face. Look at his yeah. suit. Yep. <laughs> Let me tell you this about how this guy has a mountain of debt that he's never going to be able to repay. It's crazy. Uh, I Oh, you yeah. just said, by the way, you just said 347,000. That's the actual number. But yes. I feel like that number doesn't land as as loudly as it should. So I'm going to say 300,000, which is a smaller number. But it's <laughs> $300,000 that this person owes and has no job after getting a law degree at the University of Seattle. That sucks. And this person is not alone. This is a thing that we've seen over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say an even smaller number, which is $1,445. That would be if his loans were all at 5%, which they're not, they're higher. Mm. That would be the amount he would have to pay every month just so that the loan doesn't go up. Say that number again. <laughs> 1400 14, $1,450 basically. $1,400. Yep. Per month. Okay. Per month, just yep. to maintain, just, just to tread water, $1,400 a month. And not only is this guy not making six figures, uh, as a fancy pants lawyer, this dude can't even get a job. This dude is literally on public assistance, uh, with his JD. And so, um, we'll have that discussion at the end of the show. 
Yeah. Otherwise, it was a whole bunch of LSAT advice. I don't know anything particular. We had pearls versus turds. We had a bunch of other random no. mailbag. Yeah, let's just jump in. OK, let's do it. Um, we have a huge list of things on our agenda today. Do you want to yeah. uh, just go ahead and dive in? We got a pearls versus turds here right off the bat. Let's do it. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I saw this advice from an LSAT tutor for improving reading comprehension and wanted to see what your thoughts on it would be. Uh, the part I'm really curious about is his third bullet point. Thanks, Cash. Okay. Um, I see these bullet points. Should we just skip to the third one? Yeah, there are five of them in total. The third one is the one that starts with the ellipses. Yeah. Most incorrect RC answer choices are wrong because they insert a word or two that makes the choice patently false. That word tends to be towards the end of the answer choice, especially the long ones. <laughs> Have you ever observed this? Well, I mean, I, I think that's a misuse of tends to be right on the LSAT tends to be means more often more than, than not. Yeah. Most right? of the time. It, mm -hmm. it means most of the time. And I, I just think that that's a I think that's probably this LSAT teacher is just kind of being lazy with their choice of language there. Sure. Because it does sometimes happen at the end of the answer choice that it's wrong. But frequently the answer choice is wrong in the first few words. Absolutely. That's how we eliminate them so quickly. I don't know. Would you say that you eliminate answer choices more often in the first few words or at the end? 50-50 uh, probably. I mean, well, yeah. I don't know. Maybe actually more often in the beginning now that I think about it because answer choices tend to be wrong for multiple reasons. Yeah, I they want to can go back to this. For multiple reasons. They can be wrong for multiple reasons. I want to go back to this first point this person makes. This tutor says most incorrect RC answer choices are wrong because they insert a word or two that makes the choice patently false. Yeah, there definitely are those answer choices where you're like, yeah, that word kills this. But some answer choices are just the entire thing is just going off into, you know, the wrong direction to Pluto or whatever. Yeah, and there's so, ones that just meander off, like wandering, just talking about it's like kind of tangentially related. So you could if you're trying to make a case for the answer, then you could kind of get sucked into it. Right. Absolutely. But. It's just kind of like, huh, what? I don't know. That's not what the passage was about. And that's not a word or two that makes it patently false. That's just the entire thing is worthless. Yeah. And sometimes you sense that it's going in the wrong direction right away. I almost wonder if this person is um, having confirmation bias, like the times that they think about a wrong answer choice are the ones that are the most tempting, right? The most tempting wrong answers. And those might be closer to the correct answer and thus wrong because they only have one or two words that make them wrong and those are the ones that this person is remembering but yeah there's just I, it's like too much detail to be worrying about yeah i i mean and the you know maybe go back to that second bullet too because this was all part of one. <laughs> it was a it was a bullet point that ended with an ellipses and then the next bullet point continues with the ellipses. Oh yeah, I see that now. Okay. So the second bullet point says, keep a big picture mindset when reading the passage. Okay. And save the attention to detail for the right side. 
STEM plus answer choices because, wow. So this person, it almost sounds like they're saying skim. I mean, they're not saying yeah. skim the passage. Because the like, first bullet is bullshit too. Read the passage once and try your best to get as much understanding of where things are as you can. Oh, so, no, 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 no. That's like, let's let's focus on the structure of the passage as opposed to just understanding it. <laughs> this is terrible. This whole thing is a turd. Now, now that I read it carefully. Yeah, the the because now at the even at the very top of it, it says the biggest tip I can give is to focus on the right side of the screen instead of the left. And they're making an argument in favor of not annotating, which I agree with. I don't think that I we agree. should annotate. Yeah. I don't think that we should take notes. But if you're an, come on, you cannot not focus on the passage. This is the advice here is focus on the answer choices, not the passage. I mean, at the end of the day, this is diametrically opposed to what we believe. Well, the scoreboard now is 17 pearls, <laughs> 64 turds, 24 ties. If you have a pearl versus turd candidate, you can email help at thinkinglsat.com or you can find us on social at thinkinglsat. Ben, you put this thing on here. Ideal implementation granularity. <laughs> what the fuck is yeah, that? What the fuck, right? So that is a scientist doing a study and then coming up with a term to define what they uh, researched. Ideal implementation granularity. So really okay. what this person was trying to say is that there is an ideal goal size. I think we've talked about this before. It just... Uh, the, the point of the study was simply that when you set goals for yourself, there are the Mount Everest goals, right? There are these goals that, that are, um, oh, they're so overwhelmingly big that you don't get started on them. And then there are, well, let me walk 67,000 steps <laughs> to get to the top of Mount Everest. And those, those are so granular. They're so small. It's far more steps than that. I don't know what it actually is, but that was the example given. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, but so, yeah, no way sixty-seven thousand <laughs> steps gets you to the top of Everest. But okay, <laughs> okay. Maybe. So wait, yeah. how many steps? Let's see, ten thousand steps a day, right? So it's like six days of uh, walking, putzing around your house. That's probably not going to do it. No. Anyways, you're you're interrupting my my, Sorry. my great point here. <laughs> um, so the point is, is that those those I, those goals, right, each step are too granular. So then it's overwhelming in a different sense. And so the point of this study is that if you can find that optimal goal size when you're and and actually the study was suggesting that people tap into their intuition, like they they set goals and they sense how they feel about them. Because your granularity, your ideal granularity is going to be different for everybody, right? Like <laughs> how much you can bite off is going to be greater than some, how much someone else can bite off or, or, or smaller, right? And so anyways, I'd always just kind of focused on breaking things down into smaller and smaller bits and then just go for it. But what I might have been doing and not even realizing it is that I'm stopping at some point, right? Because if you break it down too much, it's that's its own sure. like, insanity. Right. Because it's like, what can I accomplish this month is like way too big. What can I do mm -hmm. this week? Now we're getting closer. What can I do today? Seems like a great goal. Mm -hmm. And you could even break that down to like, OK, this morning versus this afternoon. Right. 
Yep. But then if you start being like, well, what am I going to do for the next 15 minutes? And then the 15 minutes after that, okay, I can see how that's now so granular. I mean, one of the problems with that is that you're spending more time planning than you're spending doing. True. But at the same time, right, I guess on that note, not that I would plan this all out, but if you're finding yourself procrastinating studying for the LSAT, right, because you think you have to do a time section or you think you have to do a time test, just do one LR question. Just do one. And I guarantee you, you're going to do more. But find that level of that size, that goal size that's just right to get you motivated to do something and start. Because once you start, a lot of these things just keep going. Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's ideal all. implementation granularity or <laughs> ideal goal size. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Uh, here's an email from Andrew. You want to read it? Yep. Hey, Nathan and Ben. One of the constantly recurring messages on both of your podcasts is that a student shouldn't take a full length practice test more than once a week. Yeah, so, uh, usually, yes. unless you're scoring very high. Sometimes that statement is followed with, <laughs> okay, this, this person has listened to us a lot, unless you're scoring in the 170s. My question is, how should someone practice the LSAT when they're consistently scoring in the 170s? Should you take full-length practice tests multiple times a week, or should you continue on the same grind? Furthermore, what are the main differences in understanding that you see in scores who are in the 170 to 175 range and scores who are above that. I guess my, my feeling here is that if you are scoring in the 170s, then you have my permission to do more than one test per week. But I am by no means asking anyone in the 170s to do that. I see no problem with doing time sections and even drilling because drilling is going to be harder questions for you, which is great. So it's an efficient use of your time. In that sense, I would say just keep sticking to the grind. If you want to do more, fine, no problem. Yeah, I think lots of people are fully successful on the LSAT without really ever doing full tests. You know, once every, you know, every other week or something is plenty. If you want to do more, if you're scoring over 170 and you want to do more, you can, but I'm not yeah. saying that you should. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You need to find the ideal implementation granularity <laughs> for you. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. for some people, it depends how much time you have and it depends how much motivation you have. But if some people scoring 175, it's like, well, yeah, I'm going to do a test and then I'm going to review it. Mm -hmm. And that's a morning worth of work. And that's great. And you might be able to do that every day. I don't know that that's the best way to study, but if that's what feels right for you, then that's what you should do. Yeah. Other people are going to be like, nah, I'm going to do a time section today, time section tomorrow, time section the day after that. I got it. Or that's all I have time for. And that's also fine. There's not one right answer. What do you think about this other question? What are the main differences in understanding that you see in scorers who are in the 170 to 175 range and scorers who are above that? I mean, I, it's I, I think maybe Andrew just kind of misunderstands how score ranges really work, first of all. Yeah, because there are people scoring above that range who have just as much understanding as the next person, but things are kind of, scores are all over the place. Yeah, well, it's just nobody's in that narrow of a range, really. It's mm -hmm. not, even if you think you're in that narrow of a range, I don't think you actually are. I think you're seeing an illusion of small samples. 
you know, I, I like show me 10 tests where they're all between 170 and 175. I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. some of them are going to be a little below 170 or some of them are going to be above 175. And so there's not really discrete ranges or anything. I mean, yeah, I would imagine if you're scoring above 170 on 10 tests, some are going to be much higher because you're already really actually higher of a one would think. Yeah. Yeah. What what is the difference? Do you think, Ben, the people who really, really get it, the people who just get everything right? What's the difference if there is one? They understand why the most tempting wrong answer is dead wrong. Say more. Well, a lot of people, they think that these wrong answers are, you know, they're close. They would work if if that correct answer weren't there. And that happens sometimes. Yeah, it does. But the vast majority of the time, it just doesn't work. You were saying the same thing that I was thinking. Uh, It. I was coming at it in a slightly different way. Mm. My, my, I was thinking, I think that they are people who, who buy into the idea that there really is just one right answer. Mm-hmm. That, that that's the real high scorers is that they've stopped arguing with the test and they've started realizing, Oh yeah, no, there's not good. There, there are, there are tempting trap answers but that you know that like there are superficially okay answers but those answers are 100% wrong and I can eliminate them and I just don't have to miss questions yeah there are a lot of people who are sort of semi successful right and and you know and this is like very successful for most people they've reached 170 uh that's a mountain that many people are never going to be able to climb but they they've reached 170 but they still they still kind of resist. They still kind of argue with the mm-hmm. right answer. Yeah. And yeah, those those people have a pretty big barrier to overcome to ever get to the high 170s because they have to realize that it's not the test. It's them. Look, I think it's actually good to argue with the correct answer if your goal is to understand it. But if you're just like digging in, like you're t- saying, it's you're, you're kind of like holding yourself back. You know, the people who persist in there's something about a wrong answer that they really like or. Yeah. And they can't let it go <laughs> more frequently. Yeah. They, they don't see the giant thing that's wrong with that answer. They yeah. can't let that. It's the one part that but, they but, like. But and, the first part is. But but. <laughs> right. Actually, we don't see that in people who score in the 170s very frequently. Mm-mm. More often, you're going to see people who. They there's something in the right answer that they don't like. And because of that, they just can't bring themselves to pick it. And then they end up picking some other weird, random answer that they didn't really understand or something because they're like, well, it it just can't. It has to be this other one. And it's sort of like something threatening is coming at you and then you just jump out the window without looking (laughs) what's out the window. Yeah. You know, and it's. And it's like, well, but wait a second, the, the, the top, top scorer would frequently we'll hear them say, um, yeah, well, you know, B, it's got this one little problem with it. And I could make a counter argument to that, but I can't pick any of the other answers. They meant B to be correct. Yeah, it's B. I mean, this reminds me of when classes were in person. I don't know why this happened more frequently than for me, but 
when we get in these debates, right, and someone would just dig in and say, well, this is why the wrong or the right answer is wrong. It's like eventually I would just sometimes, it'd be, okay, okay, I'm done talking about the right answer. You just have to explain why the answer you chose is better. It's not, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what it's always about. It's about who wins the race, not why the correct answer needs to be perfect. Yep. What are you going to pick? Yeah. What are you going to pick? And then the conversation changes and usually, hopefully they fold, but sometimes they don't. Yeah. Andrew ends on a side note. Thank you all for putting out so much free content. It's really the best stuff out there for LSAT prep. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for writing in. Thanks, Andrew. Um, if you're a new listener to the show and you want to check out our free stuff for LSAT prep, besides the podcast, you can go to lsatdemon.com and get yourself a free account. You can watch all our videos. You can read written explanations. You can check out the amazing uh, UI that everybody raves about. Um, you can use the help button, the ask button, excuse me, and uh, get some help from a team of tutors. And that's all for free at lsatdemon.com. All right. This email comes from anonymous. It says, I have dyslexia and cicadic dif uh, deficiencies, which is inaccurate eye movement. When reading, the page behind the text blooms with colors. The space between words presents snaking patterns, and I frequently misread simple words within my lexicon. Further, due to cicadic deficiencies, I often skip entire lines of text. Despite these obstacles, it does not feel fair to have extra time on the LSAT and law school exams. I do not think it is fair to my peers that my aptitude is measured with an adjustment. After law school, we will be fighting in an unadjusted arena. I will not get, nor do I think I ought to get, extended deadlines because I read slowly. So why is it fair to have extended time now? Where ought accommodations end? Last fall, I scored 160 twice without accommodations. I am signed up for the August LSAT with double time and expect to score near perfect. Yet, I still feel hypocritical about accepting accommodations. Can you share how other students have reconciled this or similar qualms? I understand my moral dilemma can be resolved by rejecting accommodations, but that solution does not address the issue about which I am trying to ask. The issue is, what the hell is fair and fair to whom? <laughs> I deeply appreciate your approach to the LSAT. I have become a better reader as a result of my studies with the demon. I have become a better writer from listening to your critiques of personal statements regards anonymous. What do you think about all that? Well, first I would say that anonymous's email is well formatted, punctuated and written. It's very clear. Um, it's might be on a little bit on the long side, but wow. You know, not, not many, if any mistakes, except for maybe demon. Um, that said, I don't know. I think that's a perennial question. What is fair? It's very hard to make things actually fair. There are so many factors that go into fairness, right? Once you start adjusting uh, competitors in a competition, it's a competition. It's a game, right? The LSAT is a game. Law school is a game. The legal profession is a game. These are all things that people compete in. And some people have advantages by getting accommodations, I think what I would do if I were this applicant is I would accept the accommodations so that I can go to law school for free 
and go to the best school that I can get into. Um, but then I would also work as hard as I can to compensate for my weaknesses so that when I'm in a situation, when I'm in a competition that doesn't give me accommodations, I'm ready for it. That's, that's all I would do. These accommodations are legit. You haven't stolen them. They have been awarded you. Um, so I would take them. Yeah. I, you know, he asks or she, they ask specifically, um, can you share how other students have reconciled this or similar qualms? And I had a student in class just the other night, we were having a similar discussion and this student was like, well, you know, doesn't really feel that fair to me, but I am entitled to these accommodations and I'm planning to work in the public interest and, you know, I'm going to do good with my JD. So I don't feel that bad about it. And I said, great. That's the first of many moral compromises that you're going to make in your <laughs> career as a lawyer, because I, I just think that these people need to stop. They ain't no fairness. It's not, it's just not about fairness. You're not entering a world where fairness is a thing. It's not, that's not what, that's not what it, it's not what any of it's about. They can talk about justice and shit, but <laughs> it's, it is not about what is right. It's not about right and wrong. It's about what you can prove. What you can do within the system. Yeah. It's what are the rules of the game? What can I do within these rules? And it's way more about what you can get away with than it's about like what's fair. It sucks. Yeah. I am super glad I don't have to do this. Yeah. Like I don't, I would never want to be a lawyer. I, I don't, I do not want to do that, but I think that's what the game is. I think the game is, it, it just doesn't matter what, what are the rules and what can I do within these rules? It's not yeah, like everybody least, else is playing <laughs> within the spirit of the rules of competition or whatever. I mean, I, I imagine there are some attorneys who hold themselves to some internal standards, but uh, at the very least, right, that's what we learned in law school. I would say law, we've mentioned this before, but law school is amoral. It's not immoral. Right. It's just amoral. It lacks morality. It's Well, it has a morality, and that morality is <laughs> how can you win? How can you win your case and still comply with the rules that are set out by the state bar? Every actor in the game has their own personal morality. Yeah. But the system itself is entirely amoral. And so I think you're going to have constant. I think you're going to have a constant struggle with what can I get away with within the rules? And what do I think is actually the right thing to do? Yeah. And I think that you're going to have a temptation every day to cut corners, um, to make to to compromise your personal morals in order to win within an amoral system. Yeah. So I wouldn't worry about it with regard to accommodations. You have a clear like visual processing issue. There's no doubt that you can get double time or whatever the hell you want. And if that results in a 180 on the LSAT and you go to some fantastic law school, then, you know, just try not to be a dick with it after. I don't know. 
<laughs> the amoral system completely allows you this accommodation. So, you know, if you want to play in this system, you should probably take that accommodation that the system is willing to give you. Yeah. Want to uh, read this one from Peter? Yeah. Peter says, hi, Ben and Nathan. Thanks for reading this. Firstly, I just want to say that I'm glad that I found LSAT Demon for my test preparation through a random search for LSAT-related podcasts on my phone. I was hitting a dead end for a year thinking that LSAT is impossible. Even though I started off using only the free version, I was able to gain a lot of insights about the LSAT that I did not get from expensive private tutors or another prep company. My biggest regret is to start off with <laughs> this other company only because it was cheap. It guided me in the wrong direction, especially LR. I felt like the founder, as well as the private tutors, are constantly holding back some important details and rushing through things as if the students did not pay them enough to explain a question fully. So thanks for not only making the website affordable, but also providing every detail possible on the explanation. Okay, any reactions to that? Oh, just thanks. Peter, we work hard at it. I mean, Ben and I both like every day are working to make the demon better to help our students as much as we possibly can. We're really very fortunate to do what we do. And um, yeah, we, we want to, we, you know, we understand how much time and energy and money you put into it. And so we want to give you the, the very best thing um, we can give you in return. Yep. My situation is that I graduated from the University of Richmond last fall and wanted to get into law school in the D.C. and Northern Virginia area. The challenge that I'm facing right now is time management. Some days I would study for four hours without improving a lot, while other days I feel way better from only studying for an hour. Well, that's not really surprising, Peter. If you went to the gym for four hours, you'd probably feel like shit the next day and you couldn't carry that on for very long. You wouldn't the be same. able to go back. You'd no. have to take four days off, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's the same with the LSAT. You're, you're just like overtaxing your brain. For me, LSAT is my priority now, so I can certainly do more than one hour. So in order to invest more time while remaining effective, what would you guys suggest? Uh, I would suggest one to two hours. I'm also looking to go over the fundamentals because I think the LSAT demon has better fundamental lessons or fundamentals lessons. Therefore, how do I balance the demon lessons, fundamentals, drills, and prep tests? One unwise thing I did was that I used to do one test every other day until the actual test day, hoping I could somehow overcome my test anxiety. It certainly did me no favor. <laughs> Don't worry about the lessons, Peter. The lessons, someone uh, was <laughs> left the other day. They left and they said, um, I, I want more lessons, right? And I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm sorry. Is there anything in particular you wanted? And they said, well, I wanted more help with logical reasoning. I said, okay. They literally just wrote me yesterday and said, I'm back. <laughs> and you're right. It's easier just to focus on the argument one question at a time. And I'm almost hitting the 170s. <laughs> the, the point here is that I, I, when people leave and they're like, oh, I wish you had more lessons. We have a lot of lessons, but we might not have as many as other people, 
but that's because actually all the lessons are baked into the explanations, right? You <laughs> right. do a question and then the explanation is not just telling you why that answer choice is right or wrong. It's also explaining to you how you should approach that question. So when I think about our actual teaching content and I think about the 9,000 questions in the demon and the 9,000 plus explanations that go along with those questions, it's like we have so much content when it comes to lessons and they're just repeating themselves over and over again. And that's the best way to learn. And evolving and getting better and coming yep. at it from a hundred different ways. Yep. I mean, if you just drill logical reasoning, you're going to see dozens of necessary assumption questions in every single one of those necessary assumption questions. If you read the written explanation, I'm going to be explaining how to do necessary assumption questions in the context of that one particular necessary assumption question. In my mind, that is the very best type of lesson is, hey, Absolutely. you struggled with this question. Let me explain to you the nature of this question. And yes, it is a type of question, necessary assumption. And yes, we do have a rubric for how we approach this type of question. But I, I just hate to stuff people's brains with a whole bunch of theory up front. I would only ever look at our actual lessons if there's just something that you know, like, oh, only if or something like that. I, oh, there's this technical phrase on the LSAT that might not be used the way that we would use it in everyday lazy speech. So let me check out this lesson on, only, you know, if versus only if or something like that. But I would never go through all of our lessons. I would just go right into the drilling. And yeah, Peter, don't do too many full tests either. Doing a full test every other day when you're looks like he's in the ones around the 160s, he says you're doing far too many tests. You should be doing a test every other week, not every other day when you're scoring at that level. And so what was happening is you're just doing a lot of work, but you're not actually learning anything. The point yeah. of the drilling is to do one question at a time and then learn the maximum that there is to be learned from that question because it will carry over into other questions. There's no point in just doing other questions before you've learned the most you can learn from that one. Absolutely. I wanted to say one more thing about lessons. Not only are lessons not in the abstract, not helpful, I think they're harmful. How many times do we talk about some word or phrase and then people start hyper-focusing on it because they we talked about it out side of any context. If you talk about a word and what it means within the context of a question, it makes sense. But when you talk about it outside in some abstract lesson, people just, they, they take away some wrong idea about that word and they start looking for the word and it just, it's not good. So it's, how many it's hundreds of emails have we gotten from people who started with a 160 diagnostic, then did blueprint and was when they're scoring 153. Yeah. That yeah, it's because their the their their mind is filled with a bunch of rules. It's like me teaching someone grammar and then saying, "Okay, go put it into practice." And they're like, "Uh, well, shit, I guess I've been doing all these things wrong." And they start applying them. You're like, "No, actually it doesn't apply there and there's an exception and you don't understand the actual grammar rule because I just gave it to you as some abstract weird rule." Instead, write a sentence and I'll correct it and then you'll see why that's right. <laughs> And why what you wrote was wrong. And that makes so much more sense. Anyways, um, Peter continues. 
That brings up my next question. How often should you do practice tests and how to make sure the scores do not fluctuate? Well, you can't make sure they're not going to fluctuate. They naturally fluctuate. That's just variance that happens. So stop trying to control that. Instead, just do the best you can when you do them. And Nathan already said every other week at most. I just taught a whole class on score variance. It's on YouTube. If you look for LSAT demon <coughs> variance, you'll find the YouTube, the class that I taught. It's available for free about variance. But yeah, you're you're always going to have variance, Peter. And variance is your friend. Law schools only care about your highest score. So it's totally fine and natural and unavoidable that your scores will fluctuate. Peter says, I was getting around 160s in standard time, but taking three sections with longer breaks after two sessions. Okay, so he did two sections and then took a long break and then did a third section. However, if it is strictly four sessions, I think you mean sections with a 10 minute break, I only get around a 155 or even worse. I think you're just reading too much into small numbers. Yeah, that's just a small sample thing, Peter. That's not that's not real. Yep. Peter continues, what can I do to make sure that I can get 160s in the test scenario? Well, start scoring on your official on your practice tests between 165 and 175. Right. Yeah. Get your get your range higher, Peter. It's yeah. not going to be the case where you're going to get consistent at 162 and then you go in and score 162. What you're going to do is you're going to have a range of 162 to 172, and then you're going to go in and take the test and, you know, hopefully score at the higher end of that range. But even if you score at the lower end of that range, you've still got your 162. That's how it's done. It's not about consistency. Cool. Peter ends. I appreciate you guys taking time to answer my questions as I am very excited to continue studying with the LSAT demon. We're excited to have you. Thanks, for Thanks Peter. Happy to yeah. have you. All right. Olivia says, following your advice, I've been looking up every word on the LSAT I am not familiar with. Recently, I came across tautology and I thought you would enjoy this word. The verbal definition, there is also a definition in logic, is repetition using different words, i.e. she over exaggerates or I would like some chai tea, parentheses, Chai means tea in Hindi. Okay. I figured this may give you a new way to describe this mistake when it comes up on the podcast. Have a great rest of your week, Olivia. Ben, do you think LSAT test is a tautology? Yep. <laughs> we hear that a lot. <laughs> LSAT test. Yeah, it's a special kind of tautology where LSAT is uh, an acronym for law school admission test. So LSAT test, I guess that's repetition using different words. It's a tautology. Thank you for that word, Olivia. Repetition using the same word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of a, <laughs> a weird one, strange okay. version of one, but thank you, Olivia. And I'm glad you're looking up words, both when you're reading and when you're writing, you need to be looking up words to deepen yeah. your vocabulary. Cool. And it's fun, by the way. It is fun. I have a Merriam-Webster account now. It's $6 a year, but it saves all my words and I can go back to them. It's nice. Well, that's fun. Yeah, I just, when I'm, I've been reading books a lot lately mm -hmm. on my Kindle and then my Kindle has a dictionary built in. It's not the world's best dictionary, but it does the job and you know, you can just 
click on a word and get the dictionary right away. Sure. Same yeah. thing in a web browser. You can right click and define words easily. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's something that you should be doing all the time. If Ben's doing it, if I'm doing it, then you should be doing it as well. Yep. This next one is from Anonymous. It says, hey there, how are you? I had a question about one of your podcasts that you said the LSAT is testing your English and logic and work. So we know and we heard a lot about the logic and work, but we haven't heard so much about the English needed for LSAT. However, the number of international students is noticeably enormous. What English learning materials is helpful specifically, especially for the LSAT, especially for the LSAT? And what if I didn't understand a word or a stimulus because of the not knowing English excessively? Am I reading this correctly? <laughs> you are. I mean, their English isn't very good. So, yeah. yeah. And the time wasting that it has for searching in dictionary. Meanwhile, the prep test solving, please say, in every aspect. Okay, I, don't I don't know. understand that. Okay. Th wait, the time wasting it has for searching in dictionary. I just want to stop there. I, I think if you don't know a word, you need to look it up. That's not a waste of your time. Also, you can't look it up on the actual test. Mm, that's what they're thinking. Yeah, you can't do if it that's then. What you have to thinking. do it afterward during review. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to look up words so that you can get better at English. I mean, you know, I, there's no way around this. Lawyers are knights of the English language. I mean, in the United States, if you're a lawyer, you're going to be doing battle with words. Yeah. Mostly absolutely. written, by the way. Not, yep. not very much out loud. It ain't like TV. It's not yep. rhapsodizing in front of the jury. Not very much. Even when it is, you already did all that work on in the briefs. Mm -hmm. So, prepared. yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've you've gotten you're like <laughs> you're doing the work on paper primarily. Yep. I mean, all the motions are going to be in writing, right? Or, well, yeah. I guess not. I guess you can make motions in front of the judge, but. Point is, you're going to have to be justifying your position using the English language, mostly in writing. And you're going to be doing battle with people who are experts in the English language. Yep. So Absolutely. if you want to practice law in the United States and be good at it, you need to become an expert in English. Yeah, I think that's all there is to it. I mean, I, I just I think, you know, law school will probably help. If you can get into law school for free with a good enough LSAT, you know, three years of law school is not going to hurt your English. That's for sure. But you need to get as good as you can possibly get in English. It might hurt it a little bit. Some of those old cases, they well, might take away the wrong lessons. It, it might give you some like very douche, douchebaggy English, but at least you'll be immersing yourself in English, yeah. which is going to be good for your English. Um, even if not all of it, is that great for your English? Yeah. This person continues, by the way, can we learn English, English adequately needed coincidentally with learning basics of LGLRRC without spending more time or nope, it takes a specific time for <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> I, you gotta work, you gotta work on your English. Keep reading. What do you recommend? Yeah. Reading. Talking to people who speak English natively Read as the rest much of as this. possible. My current English language level is B2. And that means 
upper intermediate. Thanks a lot, dear. <laughs> yeah, your English is not good for the United States. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't I don't know what English language program you're doing that calls you B2 or upper intermediate. But in LSAT world, in lawyer world, you are noticeably not a native English speaker. You are noticeably an English language learner. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. No, absolutely. I'm not judging you for it. I'm just saying that you're going to be doing battle with people who have English skills vastly better than you. You're going to be doing battle with them on the LSAT. You're going to be doing battle with them in law school. You're going to be doing battle with them in legal practice. And so you're just facing a very uphill battle here with your upper intermediate English skills. Well, I mean, not only are you going to be doing battle with people who have better English skills than you do, you're going to be doing battle with people who have better English skills than most native English speakers. Exactly. Right. So it's like (laughs) your upper intermediate, as far as, you know, the average American, I would buy that, Mm -hmm. but you're not upper intermediate when it comes to the average law student. Yeah. Or lawyer. Like you, you are noticeably beginner compared to like all other lawyers. So, you know, it's like, sorry, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, I guess, but there's just no way around that. I guess that there's a Spanish LSAT that you can take in Puerto Rico, <laughs> but like if that's your, you know, native language, I, I don't know what your native language is, but. I don't know. You need to do English language immersion. You need to get as good as you can possibly get at English because it is going to hold you back on the LSAT and in law school. Yep. I think immersion as far I'm I'm a terror. By the way, I suck at learning languages. I'm horrible. I've I took three years of high school. Sorry, three, three years, I think, of high school Spanish got A's the whole way through. Um, I've traveled in Latin America. My Spanish sucks. I am yeah. terrible. I, I got I got nothing. I'm horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I found it extremely difficult to try to learn another language. So I feel you. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not judging you for not being able to, you know, be expert <laughs> at my native language. Far from it. Sarah says, hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm a big fan of your podcast and of the demon. They have been great resources as I prepare for my law school journey. Exclamation point. I wanted to reach out with a few questions regarding the admissions process, particularly regarding letters of recommendation and personal statement tips. I finished my bachelor's degree in 2018 in environmental science and policy and my master of science in biodiversity, conservation and management in 2020. Since then, I've been working in the environmental slash conservation field and want to get into environmental law. I'm wondering if you recommend I have my letters of recommendation come from all academic sources, i.e. former professors, or if it would be advantageous to have one come from a professional source, i.e. my former boss at the Sierra Club. Ben? Sorry. (laughs) There's this burning question in the back of my head, which is like, do you have your best LSAT score on record? Like part of me, (laughs) I I don't want to push you away, Sarah. I want to answer your question, (laughs) but there is this like thing in the back of my head. That's like, 
none of this matters. I don't care which one you get. I I, I honestly didn't pay attention super closely to the details. So we got former. It's <laughs> not even pro- listening, Sarah. I'm not. It's hard. It's hard because it's like, oh, how do I, you know, how do I adjust the tie? It's like for my interview. I, I don't care about your tie. Like, do you have the yeah. numbers? So does it, I mean, do you have an opinion? You You listened to what her options are. Well, get them all and then decide which ones you want to submit and stop thinking about it. Yeah. Just make the requests, get it done. Stop thinking about it. That's my advice, which is the same as Ben's advice. You need to be worrying about your LSAT. Yep. So it's just none of this shit matters. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of bad. So there's well-meaning bad advice out there from especially law school admissions consultant folk. Because they aren't LSAT teachers. And so they're like, well, you know, there's nothing we could do about that. So, um, you know, that's not my field. So, but I can help. Let's talk about. They want to help. Endlessly talk about (laughs) your letters of recommendation. Yeah. And your personal statement and your addenda and your whatever else. And it's like, hey, let's be honest. We can predict your scholarships based on your LSAT and your GPA. Yep. So how much can all this other shit matter? Uh, I mean, I'll say it again. We can predict your scholarships from your LSAT and your GPA. So, yes, we can predict your admissions, obviously. More importantly, we can predict your scholarships, how much Mm -hmm. they're going to charge you to go to their schools from just your LSAT and your GPA. Yep. So if that's true, then none of this other shit can possibly matter. It's like not worth one LSAT point. Yep. You have to do it. You have to check these boxes. You can't submit an incomplete application, but I don't care whether you get a former professor letter or a former boss letter. And like Nathan said, which I think is a great piece of advice, just get them all and then see which one you like the best. They don't have to reveal the letter to you, but almost everyone does. Yeah. Just request. Well, you can tell probably from how they respond. Exactly. If they're like, yeah, I'd love to. Or if they're like, sure, when do you need that by? (laughs) Yeah. If they like do it enthusiastically and kind of soon, then, you know, even if they didn't get send it to you to check it first, it's probably great. And anyway, yep. it doesn't matter. It just it's got to be a professor and or a boss. I mean, you've been working for the last two years. I, I don't see why you wouldn't have a professional recommendation. But academic recommendations are also perfectly fine. Get them all and then decide later which ones you're going to submit. All right. Sarah continues. Additionally, I'm wondering whether you think it is generally better to provide a detailed plan and specific future goals in a personal statement, i.e. what motivates me to pursue my JD, or if it's better to focus more on my qualities as a person, a learner, and what I know would make me successful in law school. <laughs> None of <Neither>. that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sarah, tell me a plain spoken story from your life that demonstrates you solving problems, working hard, being. I, I want to see you being these things. What you know, I don't give a shit what you know. Cause you don't know you've never been to law school. So yeah. your, your thoughts on your traits that are going to help you in law school, those are not interesting to me. 
nor is the motivation behind why you want to get your JD. Everybody has motivations. I don't care. I care what you've done with those motivations and you've done a lot. So talk about what you've done, Sarah. Don't talk about law school. Don't talk about why you want to go to law school. Don't talk about how you're going to be successful in law school. Don't talk about law school at all. Talk about what you have achieved. Well, exactly. I mean, I'm just saying what you're saying, but that is you've been in this field for two years and this is the field of law that you want to go into. So just write about something you've done in this field. We can now see you actually doing things and solving problems and the implication will be obvious. Oh, okay. Well, you're coming to law school to go into environmental law. Got it. You don't need to say it. Yeah. You they sell law school to. for a living. <laughs> they More than anyone else on the planet, they believe that law school is the right choice for you. Yep. So you don't need to sell them on that idea. Just make yourself look like a winner. And you do that by showing, not telling. So you have to just demonstrate. Give me an anecdote maybe two from your life. Tell me about something you're proud that you achieved. Thanks, Sarah. So I think this is that time of year where people are starting to think about personal statements. And if you have your best score on record, then yeah, go back to our episodes from last year around the same time. And you can listen to a lot of episodes reviewing actual personal statements. They're all terrible. They're all terrible, (laughs) but they're going to be exactly like your first draft. Yep. And And your idea here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we can't do it anymore because it's bad for my mental health. Mm -hmm. But we're, but there, we did a lot of them back in the previous back catalog has a lot of us ripping the shit out of personal statements that we don't like. Yeah. We can't do, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. They're all the same mistakes and they're all just really bad. So people need to go listen to them so they know what not to do. And hopefully that will start getting you going in the right direction. And But that's only if you have your best LSAT score on record, because anytime you waste thinking about that or listening to us talk about it, you are hurting the most important factor, the one thing that's actually going to make a difference. Yeah. Have you exhausted all of your LSAT attempts? Do you have the very best LSAT you can possibly achieve? Yep. That That's the thing that's going to actually move the needle. Everything else is deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, yep. <laughs> if you don't have the right LSAT. And an, an excuse not to work, right? Really, that's the problem is that it becomes well, an excuse not no. to do things that really matter. Oh, it's it's me cleaning the house when I have an, uh, some writing assignment for work that I want, that I oh, need to yep. do. Got to get those and, dishes out of the and sink. And instead <laughs> I'm like sorting through my closet or some bullshit. It's like, no, you're just, there's other work that you need to be doing. Yep. So do that work. Ooh, I want to tell you something. I just came up with a new phrase. Yeah. So yesterday I put on my to-do list inbox zero. Nice. I put that on my my to-do list for ages and I do it all the time. But I stopped for a half second. I said, wait a sec. The goal of inbox zero, I do like it because it, it makes me available and aware of new opportunities as soon as they come in, right? If my inbox is cluttered with email and something comes in and it needs to be taken care of, I won't see it necessarily, right? So there's value there. I'm not saying it's not valuable, but it itself is not necessarily as value as many other things. 
So I changed the name to value zero. I want to get all the high value things out of the way first. And if I have time, I'll do inbox zero. And it showed me how often email just becomes like house cleaning, right? Like it's like, that's easy. I'll just do the next one as opposed to, no, no, no. I know, I don't even need to look at my email. I know I need to respond to this developer about this design. That takes a little mental work because I have to sit there and think about it, but that's a high value item. I wanna get value zero. I wanna get all high value items checked off and done. That's like a win. Anyways. Makes sense. I just love inbox zero, period. When I do it, my whole my whole shit is so much better. My whole my whole mental life is so much better. Yeah. When I when I just sort of stick to it, it's like. I mean, the key is don't look at your email very often. Yeah. Do it. But then when you do it, just plow through it and get rid of everything. Mm -hmm. I can see that, though, doing the high value stuff first. That certainly makes more sense than checking off all the other shit. All right. Here's an email from John. Go ahead. Hey, Ben and Nathan, I know I missed the show where you guys went through these, but I just want to thank you for all the help. I got my June score back with the elusive 180. I originally had a diagnostic of 157, and by using the other programs for studying, I got a 169 last November. I was shut out of the T14 last cycle with that and my 3.8 UGPA. With three full months of demon studying from April to June, I got those 11 extra points and my opportunities have opened immensely. I just recommended you to a couple of students last weekend. Thank you. Cool. Wow, 180. That's great. (laughs) That's awesome, John. You did the work. Yeah. You know, I'm glad we were able to show you how easy it actually is. But you're the one that did the work. Those other programs, I'm sure, interfered with John, you know, that he made a 12 point improvement, but I think they were foreclosing his ability to really reach his true potential. Yeah, because they just they weren't focused on understanding. They were focused on gimmicks and little stupid strategies and tactics and stuff instead of like, hey, We're going to show you how this actually makes perfect sense. Okay, this one is from Anonymous. Uh, I am Canadian and plan on attending law school at the University of Windsor. I intend on working in Windsor long term and going there means I can live with my parents cost free. Windsor's median LSAT is 155 and its median GPA is 3.1. I'm going into my fourth year of undergrad and expect to finish with somewhere between a 3.8 and a 3.9 GPA. Wow. Okay. So way above Windsor's median. I took a diagnostic LSAT a few months ago and scored 158. I then started studying with the uh, most popular LSAT book that will not be named, which in hindsight was a massive waste of my time. My practice test scores since finishing the most popular LSAT book that shall not be named have been a 162, 161, 153, and a 154. Yeah, that ain't working for you. Mm. Okay, stop that. (laughs) Stop doing that. Anyway, of course, these changes are all minuscule and could just be because of randomness. Well, certainly there's a lot of randomness, but that's always going to be the case. You're always going to have a range and that range isn't even particularly big. My point is you haven't gone up. I mean, the average of those four is lower than your diagnostic. So um, that's not good. Nope. 
Still, Anonymous says, it is very discouraging to see hardly any improvement and even some decline in my scores. Yes, I believe you. That's because that book has bad strategies. For example, it tells you to read the question first in logical reasoning, which is dumb. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. It hurts you. It does not help you. It hurts you. Throw that book away. <laughs> I am signed up for the August LSAT and intend on applying in the fall. That's intend to apply in the fall. Given that I am around slash above Windsor's median LSAT and well above its median GPA, I think it's still okay for me to take the August test. However, considering my personal capabilities slash expectations, my goal score was a mid 160, which seems increasingly unattainable with each practice test I take. I mean, dude, are you kidding? You had a 158 diagnostic. You're someone who can get into the 170s. Yeah, we would expect you to get into the 170s if you studied with us. Uh, oh, and they are. I have subscribed for one month of the demon, hoping to improve a few points in my final month of LSAT prep. And I'm wondering if you can give me any pointers on where you think the best place for me to start is to ensure a score in the 160s. And then we have a breakdown of the most recent well, the diagnostic and the most recent practice test. I think Anonymous needs to give him or herself more time. There's a sense of like urgency. Oh, I got to take it in August. Oh, I got to take it one month. Oh, I've got to live with my parents and go to Windsor. I guess, I guess, I just, this is an applicant who's scoring the 170s, has a 3.9. Why, why are you so set on Windsor? If I were talking to you in person, I would say, is this, is this, like you have the potential to do a lot more in this field. Why are you set on going to Windsor? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, Canada is cool. Uh, and I don't want to shit on people who have a good life at home. <laughs> like people who want to be, you know, where their folks are. Oh, that's right. I already looked this up once because I was curious where Windsor is. Windsor is south of Detroit. South. Yes. Okay. Windsor is directly south of Detroit. So you want to live in Detroit. The, I wonder if Windsor is the Detroit of Canada. That'd be really interesting to find out. Um, well, you know, because Toronto is basically the Chicago of Canada. Okay. And Vancouver, I think, is kind of the Seattle of Canada. Okay. And no, I didn't uh, know this. But Montreal is the New Orleans of Canada. Hmm. But yeah, Windsor, I guess, is the Detroit of Canada. It must be because it's basically Detroit. Um, I mean, it's literally between Detroit and most of the United States. So Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Between um, Detroit and Cleveland. Okay. <laughs> oh, maybe it's the Cleveland of Canada. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, I mean, whatever. They've got a cool life. Go. They want to be by their parents. They want to be by their family. They want for all their friends are in Windsor, whatever. You want to be in Windsor. That's fine. Um, but yeah, you could probably get a scholarship to a pretty great school in the United States. If you wanted to do that that way, I would start I also, there because I always want to look at the big picture. Like what yeah. are you doing and why are you doing it? So many young people and just people make decisions that are, when you break them down <laughs> are not well supported. It's like, why do you want to stay here? Oh, well I can live with my parents. Cool. That's a good thing. There are a bunch of other factors to make in that decision, yeah. including, I don't know. What do you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And this person has said, uh, Windsor, but 
I don't know. I would I would go all the way back to that and just start questioning everything. I know that's not super helpful and it's hard to do that on a podcast, but you have the numbers to go to a lot of great schools. So I would at least consider it. Yeah, don't rush yourself into this. Like take some more time to figure out what you actually want to do. And if that's what you want to do, great. Um, but I, I right. I think we think your ceiling is a lot higher than you seem to think your ceiling is. Yeah. Like you're yeah. saying you don't think you can reach the mid 160s. Um, we think you can <laughs> should be able to reach the 170s, not that shouldn't be that hard. Um, looking at the breakdown of these scores, you know, they got that book and then they went down in both logical reasoning and logic games. Mm-hmm. That sucks. I'm sorry. I don't know what the advice is on games in that book. I mean, I know it's a lot about like game types, which we don't even talk about. But their logical reasoning advice is terrible because they tell you to read the question first, which just immediately means you're not playing the game the right way. Yeah, not not the easy way. You're doing it the hard way. So stop that. Focus on one question at a time. You know, where are you losing your points? You're giving up so many points on logic games right now, like missing nine questions on games. You just don't have to miss any questions on games. But uh, trying to force this all in in one month, you know, probably not going to get to the 170s in a month. Maybe you will. Hope you do. Yep. All right. Want to read this one from Matthew? Yeah. Hi, Ben and Nathan. My name is Matthew. I started listening to your podcast and have been hooked. Would like your advice on preparing for the fall 2024 cycle. That was a comma splice. (laughs) Yep. Um, BG, which I'm assuming is background. Bullet point one, UC Davis, 2016 alum, GPA 2.51. Ooh. And then we have some random detail here about filing a restraining order against a fraternity brother dealt with the trauma dismissed for a year. Okay. Don't, don't mention that in your application. Well, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, is this person ever going to apply to law school? Keep, keep reading. Okay. First practice says June one twenty nine. after a month of studying one thirty eight. Since graduating, I worked in politics, mostly campaigns, communications, community organizing, diagnosed with adult ADHD, three-time ultra marathon finisher, that's 50 miles times two and 100 miles times one. Okay. Jesus. Wow. Training for the 150 mile next month. Oh my God. Caregiver for my adult autistic brother. <laughs> This is a multiple choice question. So answer is A through E here. Should I A? I'm good at multiple choice. I got this. Okay. Should I study for the LSAT to get a 175 plus? Wow. (laughs) If it were that easy, then yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, you are talking about though a, uh, from your diagnostic of 129, you're talking about a 46 plus point improvement. And I have never seen a 40 point improvement. Nope. Hmm. Okay. Then again, I've never known anybody who ran a hundred miles. Nope. So, okay, go ahead. Okay. B, take a post-bac program, SJSU for philosophy. Why? 
do you want to be a philosophy professor? Do you think it will help your GPA? Because it won't. Yeah, you've already graduated from undergrad, so you cannot do anything about that 2.51. You're stuck with a real shitty GPA applying to law school. Didn't stop me from going to law school. And with my 179, I mean, I had a 2.54 from the same school, but I had a 179, but I did not start with a 129. I could have got a scholarship to, you know, regional law schools, but so you can be a splitter and still get a scholarship, but yeah, you're going to need a real big LSAT and it could be a quite a haul to get there. Yeah. I don't know why you'd be doing this philosophy program. I don't think there's a lot of job openings for philosophers. Yeah. So I think A is out. B is out. Now we're on to C. Okay. Retake forward slash remove the three F's on my transcript. Well, it's not the three F's that are causing you to have a 2.5 for your whole undergrad career. I mean, even if those three F's were turned into A's, I still don't think you're at a 3.0. So you're still going to have bad grades for pretty much every law school. It it was the C minus after C minus after C minus, my friend. That's what got you that 2.5. And I know that from experience because I had the same. (laughs) So, okay. Yep. D, all of the above. Well, we haven't approved any of the above, so that's out. (laughs) E, forget about law school. That's looking like a very attractive choice here. (laughs) Yeah, you're just not going to get into great schools with that 2.51. That's the rough truth. Anyways, Matthew continues, still early in this process and I need to do my research, but George Washington University would be my first choice. What? Why? Probably, oh yeah, George, G, oh, GW. I thought he was saying Washington University in St. Louis because they give so many scholarships. But I mean, okay, so I'm, I'm at lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships. I'm putting in a 2.51. Let's assume that he gets rid of the three Fs. So maybe a 2.8. Okay, you can't retake them though. <laughs> you, you can, you can potentially get them. I don't know Scrubbed how. from your transcript somehow. I don't think that's going to be, I don't, I don't think it's happening. I don't think it's happening. Either. I'm, let's get, let's get best case scenario. Best case scenario. He gets the three F's removed and he gets a one seventy. Okay. Uh, best case scenario. Also URM. Uh, I'll check that just in case. Okay. That's going to help a lot. Full okay. tuition at university of Iowa college of law. Ranked 28th in the country. Full tuition at University of Arizona, Rogers. Full tuition at University of Richmond Law. Hold up. We need to do... he Okay, diagnostic of 129 plus 30 is a 159. We've never seen a one a 40-point increase. So let's say 35 points. That's still just a 164. <laughs> 164? Okay, I'm trying. Be, I'm trying to be like best yeah. case, but also like feasible, right? Yeah, close to the biggest Im- improvement we've ever seen. Yep. Okay. Yeah, Iowa now is no longer full ride. Uh, still full ride at Arizona, full ride at Penn State, full ride at University of New Hampshire. Just a whole bunch of random schools that are ranked 100th and above. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but just you're not going to GW for free with that. No. And then if you're not a URM, 
then you're in real trouble because now it's Appalachian School of Law at 147 that gives you your your best uh, full tuition offer, according to our estimator algorithm. By the way, you know we're making things up on this estimator algorithm. There's a button on the top right that says learn more. If you click on that, it tells you all about our methodology for that. We want to get better at that. We're making our best guess. Um, results from actual applicants tend to match pretty closely to what the estimator says because we we keep tweaking it to make it as good as we can make it. Um, so you can check that out if you want to learn more about how the how the estimator works. Yeah. I, I don't want to crush anybody's dreams, but like Matthew, when people come to us with 3.51 and a 159 diagnostic, so a full point better on grades and 30 more points of LSAT, we still try to talk them out of going to law school. Yeah. So, you know, like unless there's some real burning reason for you to like, I have to practice law. If you have to practice law, then you have to practice law and, you know, you should do whatever it takes, I guess. But if there's anything else you could do, I I would lean toward that. Yep. Thank you very much, Matthew, for writing in. Good luck in that 150 mile ultra marathon you're going to run. That is unbelievable. Seriously. I'm going to read this one from Jay. Hey guys, I wanted to get your thoughts on my situation and perhaps some advice on tips moving forward. Since I graduated last year, I've had experiences that left me intellectually unstimulated. I went to a rigorous high school and undergrad program. This, along with a few other factors, has led me to pursue law. See, I don't think that's a good reason to pursue law. There's lots of other intellectually stimulating things you could do. So that's not to me like the other shit. I don't care about the other shit. I care about what it is that you're going to do. What it why do you have a burning desire to practice law? Yep. I'd be much more interested in these other factors Mm -hmm. than I am in the I don't feel intellectually stimulated right now. I mean, I didn't feel intellectually stimulated in law school. I was bored as fuck. I thought it was terrible. I didn't learn anything that I found interesting at all. It was hard, but it wasn't interesting. Anyway, in May, I took a cold diagnostic. I gave myself extra time on the logic games and reading comprehension <laughs> sections. That's okay, not well, a diagnostic. That's, that's not a diagnostic. Yeah, what is that? That's that's just... an untimed test. Yep. Okay, and I scored a 170, which really gave me the confidence to pursue law. Now, 170 untimed, I mean, that is still pretty good. That's good, yeah, because you're understanding some things, right, that some people don't understand even when they take these tests untimed. So that's great, but it it's hard to know where you would be. Yeah, it has less diagnostic value than if you had taken it timed. I even signed up for the August LSAT in my first couple weeks of studying. Parentheses, stupid, I know. Now in mid-July, my most recent score is 162, and I've been blitzing to try and break into the 170s. I hate the sound of blitzing. What the heck are you doing to blitz? My goal is T14 plus big law. And my GPA is under the median uh, for the T14 schools with a 3.7. Currently, I'm considering between 
hoping for the best on the August LSAT and applying early as possible since I've heard earlier equals better chances. And with my UGPA, I could use all the help I could get or just waiting to apply early next year and get the highest score possible. W E shadow, etc. I don't know what that means. Shadow sounds like shadow attorneys, like learn more about the law, probably. Okay. So I think work experience. Oh, that's what it is. Work experience. And who gives a shit? (laughs) Jay, the LSAT's what matters. Don't take the August test. You're not ready. Yep. This this podcast is coming out in late July. The LSAT's right around the corner. You're scoring 162. You need to be in the 170s, dude, if you're going to give yourself a T14 big law (laughs) career. Yeah. Don't take the August LSAT. It's a waste of an, it's a waste of an attempt. It's a waste of $200. Definitely don't try to force in an early application. You're going to put way too much pressure on this test. You're going to crash and burn. Don't don't do that. That's dumb. I like your second plan. <laughs> Just keep studying and yeah, sure. Get more work experience. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Shadow. The shadowing learn- is good for learning whether you really want to do this, right? Because one of the questions we have for Jay is, is your reason for going to law school a good one? If you shadow an attorney and you love what that person does, sweet. Yeah. Okay. Also, my major was biomedical engineering, and I've heard that major doesn't count for much. Bullshit. Yeah, that's total bullshit. <laughs> okay. Warm regards, Jay. That's bullshit. People, I mean, you apply with a biomed engineering degree, the law schools are going to be like, great wow, we don't have many of you. (laughs) And by the way, there is a lot of biomedical engineering law issues. Hell yeah, there is. Do you, do you think that like Pfizer employs lawyers? Moderna (laughs) employs lawyers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Big law. They they need people who understand these issues and aren't stupid about them. They employ big law lawyers. So having a technical background is huge. Um, And, you know, that makes your 3.7 look a lot better, too. Yeah. 3.7 in poli sci is like, what, were you lazy? Yeah. 3.7 in biomedical engineering is like, oh, did you have the best GPA in your whole class? Mm -hmm. But there's one thing that's going to really make that whole story sing. Mm, I wonder what it is. I wonder. No, I mean, dude, you just got to get the LSAT that's going to make them like take notice. So you show up with a 167 and they're going to be like, eh, LSAT below our median GPA below our median. Don't care. Yep. But if you show up with a 177 LSAT, which seems like you should be capable of, then they're going to go, oh, shit, LSAT above our median. We want that because it helps our rankings. It also is a clear indicator that you have what it takes to kick ass in my law school. 3.7, I'm a little bit concerned about. It lowers our median. I don't like that. Oh, but biomedical engineering. Oh, see, this is one of those kids who took a technical degree. Their GPA suffered. 3.7 is probably great for biomed. And look, 177 scoreboard. They're smart as shit. We want this person. Yep. That's it. It's just the story because that fat facts are super, super powerful. Right. And the 177 is a fact. The 167 yep. is a very different fact. Yeah. And so you, you, you put that fact there and then they're going to put the rest of the pieces together in a totally different way. Yeah. 
Take another year, Jay. You're going to be super happy you did. Work your ass off on the LSAT. Want to take this one from Kristen? Yeah. Hi. I came across this article which exemplified how vital the work you all are doing is to prevent more situations like this from happening. Thank you for everything you do. Okay. I I read it. It's uh, the headline is meet a first generation attorney with $347,000 in student debt who can't land a job. Oh, geez. That's horrible. Yeah. It's kind of clickbaity. It's from Business Insider. Um, It has a very sad picture. (laughs) The picture (laughs) is this poor guy and his very proud father and brother. And he's at his swearing in ceremony. So he passed the bar. Um, but he went to uh, Seattle University Law School, ranked a million in Seattle, Washington. And then he ended yeah. up moving to Nebraska or some shit and passing the bar. And now he's like on government assistance. Then he owes $347,000. And Jeez. Biden's uh, student debt relief is not going to help him because he has plus loans, which plus loans are the only way you can get that $347,000 in debt, I think. And this guy's totally fucked because he went to law school. Yeah, like this sucks. It's not he went to law school and he's totally fucked. It's he's totally fucked because of law school. Law school fucked him over. Yes. Do not be this guy. I mean, meanwhile, other people at Seattle are there for free. I'm sure I need to look that up now. Yeah. Let's look at Seattle University ranked 117th in the country. Whatever. It's a fine regional school. It's an okay regional school. And they charge full price to 15% of their class. 85% of their class gets some form of scholarship. 39% get half to full and 4% get full. So that's, you know, 43% of the class that's getting more than half of it paid for by the school. And poor Steve over here paid full price for a just essentially worthless JD. And now he's, you know, because like this guy, even if he does get a lawyer job, how much is he going to make with a whatever lawyer job in Nebraska? In Nebraska, he's going to be making 50 if that. Right. Oh, this is so, so this is like so bad. Yeah, and, it's wh- it's tragic. Like this dude is going to die with his student loan debt. Like this dude's never buying a house. He's he's never it talked about he's put off buying a house. He's put off um, adopting a kid with his uh, wife. Uh, oh. His fiance has medical complications. Um, he the the plus loans, by the way, are currently at seven and a half percent. I mean, he, he is just buried. So plus loans are the ones that are not, they're outside, they're private loans outside of the federal yes. system. Yeah. yeah. But it still looks like it's, it looks like it's a federal loan. In fact, I think it's even called like the federal plus loan or something like that. And, but no, but even federal loans, it's just a loan. So it's still not, it's not what we're talking about and it's not financial aid. People call these federal loans financial aid. Because no, the financial in- aid office is the one that gives you your package of aid. And that aid is mostly loans in which is not aid. Steve's that is case. not aid. <laughs> right. That is someone saying, let me charge you later and charge you a lot more. That's not helping. That's hurting. Well, that's helping them. 
<laughs> I mean, because like they're like, oh, yeah, here, we're going to show you your aid package. And it's like oh all these God. all these huge numbers that go directly to them, the law school. And then, you know, you just uh, die with a huge amount of debt. It's still growing. I mean, he's on public assistance like he he can't. I, I doubt he's even making payments. No, no, he's not. Oh, geez, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. So it's uh, did he go to Seattle the whole time? So he started at Seattle or he moved? No, he started there, right? I think he went there the whole time. Then he moved because he whatever. There were reasons. Yeah. Yeah. These schools. Yeah, that's shameful. Um, Everybody should click this link. We'll have it in the show notes. Uh, Everybody should click this link just so you could see this guy at his swearing in ceremony. Oh, um, and, and understand that this guy is, uh, you know, licensed to practice law and uh, just can't get a job. And will even if he does get a job, he will never repay that debt. OK. Thanks. <laughs> I, I read that like first thing this morning. Kristen. <laughs> Thanks, Kristen. You brightened my day. Um, all right. Here, Samantha. Yeah. It says, hey, guys, I don't have a question. I just wanted to write in to share some unsolicited crap advice I received. I'm a paralegal and I have a lot of friends who are attorneys. One of them told me today that no part of studying for the LSAT matters more than timed practicing. He said that I should absolutely never practice untimed because it'll give me a false sense of confidence. I argued that, as we all know in the LSAT demon slash thinking LSAT fam, of course, doing timed sections is important, but you should focus on understanding the questions, not the time. Speed means shit if you're not getting the answers right. He disagreed and said that no one actually fully understands most of the questions on the LSAT, that you will never actually get any better at them, and and that the only thing you can improve is your timing. He also told me that no one scores over 170. I respect this guy, but I told him that I can't wait for the day later this year when I have my 170 plus in hand and can tell him just how shitty his advice is. Thanks for all you do. I was lost before I found the demon. Best, Samantha. Samantha, you you actually told him that? I. (laughs) That's funny. I I might wait till I have my score in hand and then just the score. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's a commitment device. She's yeah, put it out there that yeah, she, has she has to get to do her one seventy plus now. Um, uh, boy, Ben, how many demon students do you think scored over one seventy in the last cycle? Holy smokes! I don't know actually, because also the number of demon students is growing, so that yeah. number is presumably growing. Yeah. A lot. Dozens, at least. At um, least. Oh, for yeah. sure. 100 or more. I mean, like (laughs) what? (laughs) Including everybody who works for us. Yep. uh, Us ourselves and no, many, many, many of our students. Yep. Um, Many of our students already scored 170 and are trying for more. Yeah. So you can respect this guy all you want, but uh, based on what I know about him, uh, he seems like he's popping off in an area that he doesn't know anything about. Thanks for writing in, Samantha. All right, should we wrap it up? We should. Wait, where's my show close? <laughs> I, got, uh, I got this thing I out. Of, the agenda's leave. out of order. <laughs> Sorry. We don't Eric. know what to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can be LSAT famous. Uh, get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. 
If you have questions about the LSAT Demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 360 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.